Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll be there for a few minutes this morning as we dig into the scriptures. As you turn there, let me uh, excitedly say we are having a singing tonight. It's the fifth Sunday of, uh, of the month, and so we'll have a singing tonight. Uh, I have not handed out assignments yet, uh, but I do have a list if you're interested in doing a reading or a song, see me afterwards, and I will fill your name in on the list. If not, I'll be making phone calls this afternoon to make sure that the list is filled out. Uh, but I also wanted to mention that we're going to try to do a, a couple of new songs this evening. Uh, they're not necessarily newer songs, but I've not heard them sung here yet. And those songs, links to those songs, to recordings of those songs are on the Facebook family Facebook page. So uh, if you are part of our family, you have access to that. We hope that I want you to, to, to go in and listen to them at least this afternoon. Uh, before or after your nap, that, that's generally what most of us do Sunday afternoon. And anyway, uh, go, go and listen to those songs so that you can um, be able to focus more on the words this evening than the music, uh, which is always the difficulty of learning a new song as a congregation. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump into our lesson this morning. Um, we are going to be talking primarily about a verse I mentioned last week, which is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, it says there, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So I want to talk about that some today, just the concept found in that verse and talk about what it means to have broken cisterns and what that looks like today for God's people. But in order to do that, I feel it's necessary to go back and build the context of what's being said here by, the, by God through the prophet Jeremiah. And so what you have in this story right here at the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecy is the story of Judah. And so you go through and you break up just different sections. God retells from his perspective what Judah has done and how they have gotten from where they should be to where they are currently. And it's kind of a sad story, but it is a story that we see repeated even today. I think you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Verse 1, 2, and 3 of the chapter says this. The word of the Lord came to me, go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember your lo the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, the house of Jacob and all families of the house of Israel, this is what the Lord says. It started beautifully. It 
started as a group of people who truly loved God and trusted God and wanted to follow God and were even willing God out into the wilderness to a place that had not yet been sown. Willing to, to love him and trust him enough to go where he said to go. And it should have stayed that way. I mean, how many different men or stories in the Bible do you see where they trusted God to go where God said to go, and it worked out well for them? I mean, look at Abraham back in Genesis 12. God says, get up from where you are and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham got up and went. And he was the beginning of their people. That should have been right from the very start, from the first moment God had contact with Abram, that should have been the story of this people. But it's not. Because what you find is Israel quickly, or Judah, quickly rejects God. Verse 4, we already read. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no, travel, or no one traveled through and where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priest quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Now, we have, over the past two years, dwelt in that story in our Bible classes. We have gone from Genesis, where God calls Abram, to, to Exodus, where the people are delivered out of the land of Egypt, and they, they at least, in some way, all the way to Mount Sinai, gave lip service to God, or, or maybe they even believed in God and, and were fearful of the powerful images of God at Mount Sinai, but we know as they went into their promised land, they refused to kick out uh, the, the, the foreigners. They started following after foreign gods. The judges are a story of the people continually rejecting God and coming back to God, rejecting God and coming back to God. And you've got people saying, where is God? We need God. But soon after that, by the time you get to the time of Solomon and the kings that followed, there's nobody asking, where is God? They don't even know who God is anymore. And it's a sad story of the way things just continually spiraled downward and people got farther and farther away from God to the point to where they forgot he was even there. Verse 9 down through verse 13 says, Therefore I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kadar and carefully consider. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. 
Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. God is angry, and justifiably so, because these people haven't just rejected him, but they've rejected him for falsehood and lies. They have rejected what is true and good and honorable, what was their glory, what was him who was their provider. They rejected him for worthless, pointless idols. And God's angry about it. Jeremiah is the prophet that we call the weeping prophet because he comes to proclaim God is done. He's finished with you. God is destroying Judah. He's letting Jerusalem be destroyed. He is letting it all go. And he will bring a small portion back so that he may keep his promises. But he is done with you. And he even goes on to talk about God divorcing the people and that he is utterly tired of this. He reveals what the consequences will be. Slavery, becoming praise, no longer having the protection of God, uh, the fact that they had abandoned God, so God was letting them walk away. Now, what will you gain, verse 18, by traveling along the way to Egypt to drink the water of the Nile? What will you gain by traveling along the way to Assyria to drink the water of the Euphrates? You know, you're looking for other water to satisfy you, but the truth is the only water that truly takes care of you is the water of life himself, that the fountain of living water, as he's described back in 13. And so they will be um, punished. Verse 19, your own evil will discipline you. Your own apostasies will reprimand you. Recognize how evil and bitter it is for you to abandon the Lord your God and to have no fear of me. This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. And so God continues to mourn. Long ago I broke your yoke, I tore off your chains. You insisted I will not serve On every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down like a prostitute. I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. How then could you turn into a degenerate foreign vine? And so God then goes on for the rest of the chapter to admit that their situation is hopeless. It's hopeless. You know, what's so sad about this picture of Judah is that the promises that they had in the beginning were completely rejected for nothingness. They gained nothing by going their own way. They gained no long-lasting benefit by pursuing their own ideas or their own gods or their own ways of living. None of those things that they pursued lasted or had any benefit to them in the long run. And the God who would have protected and loved them and provided for them, the one who had set them up for success from the very beginning, 
That God is rejected and left behind and the people don't even realize that they've done it. And the story of Judah is unfortunately the story of us even today. You see this pattern that you've got there that, you know, apostasy still looks the exact same. It follows the same pathway. We begin with loving God. We begin with that relationship being planted as a choice vine, being redeemed, being rescued, being made good. We, we, we start well, and then for some reason at some point, we start to love ourselves instead of loving God. It becomes about pleasing self. It becomes about things we want. It becomes about us being fulfilled. It becomes about what do we get out of this. And eventually what you do is you start to realize, well, I, I can pursue those things on my own terms. I don't need to follow all of these rules that God has in front of me. I no longer have to go do all these things that God says I need to do. And so I start claiming that God really has no substance. He has no purpose. He's not really necessary anymore. And so then I start rejecting God as if God isn't really needed to the point that I end up rejecting God completely. This is the, the tried and true process the devil takes people down again and again and again. I have seen it in so many of my peers that have grown up in, in loving homes and homes where their parents have tried to guide them and direct them and point them in the right direction and connect them with God and God's truth and, and, and help them to have that advantage of a good beginning. And then for whatever reason, start to pursue their own way, their own things, their own ideas, their own ideal. They want their truth and not that truth. And, and they start redefining the way they're going to think about life. And then they start to argue that their way is better than God's way. And eventually they walk away from God completely. Or they walk toward a false God, a God of their own making, a God who teaches what they want God to teach, not what God actually teaches. We have a tendency in our world to create false saviors. False saviors. If you will just believe this way or do this set of actions or, or live in this, this, this manner, then you will be saved. But we forget that the only Savior who can save us from what really has us lost is Jesus. We can't come up with our own pathway to heaven. We can't come up with our own way to be rescued from this world. It is amazing to me in, in the current climate right now with things going on in Afghanistan and, and, and all of those uh, potential dangers and, and, and difficulties that we are facing in the future because of decisions that have been made, how many Christians I have heard talk about how, well, the answer is this political movement. No. The answer is Jesus. That's it. There is no other answer. Or, or as we talk about the virus and we talk about the, the disunity that's happening even among God's people with masks and no masks and vaccinations and no vaccinations and all of this that's going on, we start arguing about what is 
our position. And the truth is, the only answer to all of that is Jesus. He's it. If we start finding answers elsewhere, we are making for ourselves broken cisterns. Because we are pursuing our own way instead of God's. You know, coming back to God is the only way we can come back to hope. It's the only way we can find answers. It's the only way we can, we can solve the issues of the world. And I truly mean solve the issues of the world. You see, I, I see a lot of young people and older people even these days that they have a genuine interest in fixing the world. They want things to be better in their communities. They want things to be better in their country. They want things to be better in their churches. They're, they're trying to find solutions to all of the problems they see around them, and that is commendable. But the problem is when we look for those answers where they are not, all we do is exacerbate the problem. We make things bigger. And God is so clear that the only way to find answers is to come back to God. He is the answer. So that brings me back to our verse here, verse 13. As the people have walked away from God, they've deserted God as being the source of their livelihood, the source of their lives, the source of their answers. He says, my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, the source of goodness, the source of life, the source of truth, the source of satisfaction, the source of goodness. They've abandoned me, and instead they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. The truth is, what's being presented here for us by God is that there is no answer but him. He's it. And so when we realize that God is the source of all good things, we turn to God as the answer every time. We find provision and goodness and, and, and life. We find all the things we're looking for. But when we turn to other things, like modern trends, there's a lot of good that can happen with social media. And I, I know this, this is a broken record. Y'all hear me talk about this all the time. I want to give you some examples real quick. You know, there are a lot of good things. I, I love to write, and so I've lately been putting up articles and things that, that I've, I'm writing and, and starting some good conversations with different people, and I've enjoyed that. Uh, hopefully that does good. I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I know we can encourage one another. We can keep track of one another on Facebook, reach out to people whenever they need help. I love Facebook just for the jokes. Like, I, I came across this one this morning. I know, uh, I now know how it will all end for me. One of my kids will unplug life support to charge their phone. You know, that's probably some truth in that. Here's where I, I struggle a little bit with Facebook, is that Facebook has become 
not just a, a place for complaining and bickering and fighting and disunity. I've talked about that before. I'm going to leave that one behind for today. But it also has become a place for false theology and false ideals that sound so good, but when you compare them with Scripture, they're, they're really bad. They're wrong. They're in error. I see Christians passing these things around like candy. They, they just buy into it because it sounds lovely. But when you really think about it and you really dig into what's being said, it's not lovely at all. I crossed this one this morning. It's a good thing, not a selfish thing, to choose people who are good for you. Passed around by, by brother in Christ. And, and we look at that, and, and at first glance, it sounds good. Uh, it's a, a, a primary quote in one of the most famous self-help books that you can get, pick up in just about any store right now. Uh, and, and the idea of, yeah, surround yourself with good people. You know, doesn't the Bible say evil companions corrupt good morals, right? Surround yourself with good people, and that'll be good for you. The problem is, this is generally put out there not about somebody who is moral versus immoral. Surround yourself by people who will tell you what you want to hear. Cancel everybody else. And if this has become the mantra of what we call cancel culture, just get rid of all the people in your life that you don't like, that don't make you feel good, that don't support what you want. You just get rid of all of the negativity, and then life becomes positive and good. How do I cancel a brother in Christ? Even if I don't like what they tell me. Even if, I, if, if they're, they're one of those people that, that just kind of rubs me the wrong way. There's no real reason for it. They just... You know, I, I find myself on edge whenever I'm around them. I, I just, there's just something about them. I, I'm just going to get them out of my life. That's not selfish. That's good for me. Is it? You take a phrase like this in our modern culture, where even in the church we're divided over masks or no masks or vaccinations or no vaccinations or how should we handle these different situations. And, and what I do is I take this ideal, and, and I have a bad habit of pointing at the back screen. I take this ideal right up here, and I say, okay, all those people that disagree with me about whether I should or should not wear a mask, I'm just, I'm done with them. I'm done. I'm going to cancel them. They're not going to be Facebook friends anymore. I'm not going to have to listen to all their, their, their you know, stuff that I don't agree with, and I'm just going to get them out of my life. I'm going to avoid them at church. I'll still go to church with them because I can't make them not come, and I'm not going to not go, but I'm not going to talk to them because I know if I do, they're going to say something that's going to rub me the wrong way, and I don't want to have to deal with that because I want good people in my life. That's not healthy. That's not good. That does not promote unity. It promotes agreeability. And that, that, that's not okay. 
You know, God's answer is not get rid of the people who disagree with you. It's go have a conversation with people who disagree with you and keep having a conversation until you are in in agreement. That's what it says. First Timothy or first Corinthians chapter one, verse 10 uh, over in uh, sermon on the Mount, he talked about if you know somebody who is, uh, has a problem with you, you are to leave your sacrifice at the altar and go to them and fix that with them and then come back and offer your sacrifice to the Lord. God takes our relationship seriously. So should we. Here's another one I've come across. You are bigger than what is making you anxious. No, you're not. God is. You might not be. And when you are told that you are bigger than what's making you anxious, yet for some reason you can't get over those anxious feelings, it produces in you guilt. What it should produce in you is dependence on God. Be anxious for nothing because you are bigger than it. Is that what it says? Not at all. Philippians chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing But in prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's about turning to God, not to yourself. So no, you might not be bigger than what you're anxious about. But your God is. When you start seeing your worth you'll find it harder to stay around people who don't. Oh, that sounds so good. But it's not. Because the truth of Scripture says your worth is found in Jesus. Your worth is found in your relationship with God. Your worth is found in your redemption that is given to you by God's grace. And the value of other people around you is found the same way. And so I can't sit there and make judgment calls about my greater worth and and someone else's lesser worth or someone else's need to see my good value and the way that I value myself. No. Any, Any life ideal that lifts you up as a valuable person not in the context of God giving you value, is wrong. It's just wrong. Your value comes from Jesus. There's one more. You are enough. If you could change that top word to God, and then for the sake of correct English grammar, change the middle word to is, we're good. God is enough. I can put that up all day long. You are enough. You're not. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? That God recognizes that we are not enough on our own, that we are not in and of ourselves capable of redeeming ourselves, of getting out of our own messes. And so God, by his mercy, by his grace, by his love, lets us know that he is enough. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite 
passages of Scripture because it really puts life in perspective of exactly how we're supposed to view this. Titus chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Did you notice how many times in that passage Paul places the emphasis on him? He is enough. It's his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his redemption, his sacrifice, his salvation, his inheritance that he gives to us. It's all about him, not about you. And I know that that this little meme is put out there to, to help people feel better when they're down. I get that. But if my feelings of feeling better are based on my own worth, they're not going to last very long. Because the reality is, I might feel better today, but I'm going to feel bad again tomorrow because I'm going to mess up again. But if my feelings are about God and his greatness and his power and his love, if that's where my focus is, then I can feel good every day about that. Because he is enough. You know, we look to modern trends, we look to medicine and, and, and modern science, we look to relationship. All of these things are false gods if we let them be. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean there, there isn't some value in a meme. It doesn't mean that there isn't value in medicine and, and medical treatment. It doesn't mean there isn't value in relationship. All of those things can be good things, but all of those things can become idols. And when we build our hope and our trust in those things, instead of letting the fountain uh, of living water be God himself, well, then we got a cistern with holes in it. We got a life that's just going to be a leaky bucket. I hope that's not us. God has truly given us a great opportunity to to know he is, he is what life is all about. But all of those things, when we let them become overly important to us, they become water poured into a broken pot. And I don't know if you've ever tried that. It doesn't work great. Just uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, we had uh, gotten in the car after we had, uh, as a family, uh, the, the Four oldest kids are involved in a running club, so we had gone down to Moody for their running club. And they all take these big, massive, heavy bottles of water with them because it's that time of year. If you're going to be out running, you need to stay hydrated. And, and Gibson had, uh, not Gibson, Con had drinking about half of his water, I think. And he got in the van. Gibson had carried all the bottles to the van and uh, laid them in, in Tiffany's seat. And... Uh, Con got in, he was thirsty, he wanted something, so we pull out his bottle, and it's empty. 
And of course, the logical conclusion was, well, Gibson, why did you drink Khan's water? Like, that was Khan's water. And Gibson's going, I didn't drink it. It wasn't me. You know, we were, we were accusing him pretty hard. And uh, he, he's, he's claiming innocence. And then my wife shifts in her chair and she realizes her whole bottom is wet. Just leaked all over her chair. Didn't do Con much good to have a leaky bottle. Didn't do him much good because, I mean, he just had to ride the rest of the way home Thursday. He was crying. I'm kidding. He wasn't really. Uh, but, I mean, he, he, it, it was, it, it does no good to have a leaky pot because it doesn't hold anything. And that's the reality about some of these dreams and some of these ideals and some of these things we put our, our trust in. If you put your trust in something other than God, it doesn't hold water. It has no substance. It won't get you anywhere. And so I encourage you to start putting your trust back in the only place that's really worth it, God himself. God himself. I, I don't know where you are in your own walk with God. I, I, I don't know what you're struggling with, but I will tell you this. If you've not put on Christ in baptism, the reason is you're putting your trust in something else. You're putting your trust, uh, your, your hope in, well, I've got another day. I've got more time. I can make that decision later. Your trust is in your ability to have more time. Do you know what you don't have control over? How much more time you've got. No control over that at all. Or maybe your reason is, well, I, I, just, I, I need to get some things fixed. I need to get my life straightened up. I, I've got some sins I've got to take care of in order to... You know what you're doing then? You're putting your trust in yourself and your own ability to overcome things. Jesus has overcome the world, not us. We just hold on to him. I don't know what it is you're, you're putting your trust in. Maybe, maybe it's, well, my, my parents say that, that I'm not ready. Well, then trust is in your parents. Or, or maybe it is that, uh, you know, my, I, I've, I've got grandparents who, who haven't done this or parents who aren't, who aren't Christians, and if I become a Christian, then, then I'm condemning them and, I, then you're putting your trust and your destiny in the hands of what your parents or your grandparents are going to choose to do? I, I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible is so clear. The only way to have your trust in the fountain of living water in God himself. That's the only way. And the way to do that is to be baptized into Christ and have those sins washed away. Like we read in, Timoth in Titus, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. If you will come and be baptized into Christ, God will regenerate you, recreate you, remake you, and he will renew you by the Holy Spirit. I, I can't think of a good reason for you not to do that. If you've not put on Christ in baptism, we want you to do so today. Please let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, 
whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.